and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Michael Morley, Assistant Professor of Law at Florida State University College of Law. We will discuss his article, Election Emergencies, Voting in the Wake of Natural Disasters and Terrorist Attacks, which was published in the Emory Law Journal. So welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's great to have you on. And um, this paper really could not be more timely uh, because we are uh, obviously experiencing a uh, a crisis event right now, which seems like it's very likely to affect, at the very least, uh, primary elections and possibly even the upcoming uh, presidential election. So for listeners who might not have really thought about sort of what happens in the event of a crisis that has some effect on election, is there any sort of like general statutory guidance for states and the federal government about what to do if some kind of, you know, act of God of one kind or another, or uh, some kind of event uh that's out of the control of the government uh, affects the administration uh, of an election? As, as a matter of federal law, no. Uh, historically, elections have been uh, conducted as very, even federal elections have been conducted as very decentralized affairs, regulated primarily by state law, administered at the state and even more so at the county and municipal levels. And so because most of the laws and regulations governing the electoral process are a matter of state law, f- federal law really doesn't provide uh, much of a framework for, de- for dealing with these types of emergency situations. When an emergency comes up, and by an emergency, this could be anything from a natural disaster, like a, a hurricane, a blizzard, an earthquake, a flood. It could be a terrorist attack like 9-11 itself occurred on the the day of the New York primary. They actually had a primary election in process when the the planes uh, hit the the World Trade Center. Or it could be a public health crisis like like a pandemic. Obviously, we're in the midst of one now. Several primary elections have already been affected by it. We already saw it uh, during the election of 1918 occurred while the Spanish flu was uh, reaching its peak. So whatever the nature of the emergency, some sort of massive outside shock to the system that makes it extremely difficult, extremely dangerous, impracticable, or even impossible to carry out the election as originally scheduled, there's really three main types of legal authorities or legal sources for response. The first is what I refer to as election emergency statutes. These are state laws that empower election officials to take certain types of actions when it becomes apparent that the election cannot proceed as as scheduled. Here, I, I classify reactions or what election officials are permitted to do into three categories, election modifications, election postponements, and election cancellations. A modification is where you try to carry out the election more or less as scheduled while tweaking certain rules, while making adjustments to certain rules, making certain changes. 
extending certain deadlines so that to the greatest extent possible, you're able to successfully complete the election. So examples of some sort of election modifications might be extending polling place hours by a few hours, for example, if there, if uh, polling places had temporarily become inaccessible, or if there were a power failure that prevented them from, from using uh, voting machines. It could be a matter of allowing people to cast their ballots in alternate locations if certain, if, if due to flooding or due to a hurricane, certain areas become become inaccessible. It might be allowing absentee ballots to be cast or allowing voters to request absentee ballots after the, the, the deadline has passed or in excuse only states, allowing the general public to, 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 to cast absentee ballots in circumstances where state law would, would otherwise prescribe that. So modifications try to mean that we're trying to go through, we're trying to carry out the election, but we're either suspending certain requirements, extending certain deadlines, or making a few changes as necessary to be able to respond to the crisis. A postponement is what we saw on 9-11, where the election is basically put on pause and is carried out on the on a day with usually within a week or two where everything is held constant so the same uh, body of people who are eligible to vote is are permitted to vote during the postponed election so they don't reopen the the voter registration rolls it's the same candidates you're trying to hold as much constant as possible just doing the same election a few days later or one or two weeks later because it became impossible on that day to carry out the election. Finally, the most extreme case is what we call an election cancellation, where, and this is what we saw in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, where a substantial portion of New Orleans was absolutely devastated. A third of the places that they used for polling locations were totally destroyed. The infrastructure was destroyed. You didn't, you didn't have electricity throughout, throughout uh, most of the area. In fact, obviously, a significant a fraction of the population were forced to evacuate the city. They were, they were dispersed to, to, to surrounding states, dispersed throughout, throughout the country. In fact, even many of the election officials who were needed to carry out the election, many of the polling place officials in particular, had, had abandoned the area, had been forced to flee the area because of the devastation, and so simply weren't there to carry out the election. And so in that case, the, the, the governor, the secretary of state, were forced to totally cancel local and even some parish elections, their, their equivalent of county-level elections, for a, a period of, of several months until eventually enough of the, the, the attempt to, to, to rebuild the infrastructure, to start rebuilding New Orleans, had sufficiently progressed. Infrastructure was being rebuilt. People started to return, or in some cases, had, some, had, had decided to permanently relocate to other states, in which case then they, they switched their voter registration to those other areas. And a more aggressive infrastructure was put in place to facilitate voting by people who still intended to return to New Orleans, who whose either houses hadn't been rebuilt yet or who weren't able to return yet in order to ensure that even though they were out of state, they would be able to participate. Obviously, vote by mail, absentee voting is a, is a key provision of that. And 
that is the extreme situation where it's not just a matter of tweaking a few rules. It's not just a matter of delaying the election by a few days, but you totally have to start entirely from scratch because it is simply a physical impossibility to carry out the election. So in some, as I said, to go back to your original question, this is all a matter of state law. So in some states, you have election emergency statutes that specifically deal with the electoral process that empower election officials to greater or lesser degrees, depending on the state, to make modifications, to engage in postponements. In some cases, they have to go to court. They have to seek a court order. But this is all a statutorily authorized, a statutorily designated process. The second main legal approach that you see is rather than having election emergency statutes, states instead have to rely on their general state of emergency laws. So in, in many jurisdictions, when the governor declares a state of emergency based on a natural disaster or a public health crisis, some other circumstance like that, the law of many states actually allows the governor to either suspend state statutes or suspend state statutory deadlines when enforcing them, as you typically would, would create a substantial risk to human life or would interfere with ongoing recovery uh, operations. And so in some jurisdictions, governors have to rely on their more fundamental state of emergency discretion to just suspend statutes or suspend deadlines in order to respond to crises. And so these tend to pose more of a problem simply because they, they, these laws don't have the same degree of specificity. They don't give the same guidance. They don't cabin discretion in the same way that election emergency specific statutes do. And so governors are largely left to their own devices in trying to figure out on the fly, in the midst of an ongoing emergency, as they're worrying about saving human life and keeping the state as a whole up and running, they're trying to figure out what should be done about the election, what types of changes need to be made. And so that's the second way of handling it. And then finally, for jurisdictions that don't have election emergency laws, whose general state of emergency statutes don't empower the governor to take action, you see this handled as a matter of constitutional law, Litigants, whether voters, political parties, candidates, third party interest groups will go to court and will seek temporary restraining orders and will ask the courts to step in and either modify the rules of the electoral process in the extreme case, postpone elections. And a, a judge will be in the position not of deciding what the best policy is, not of deciding what, how ideally this should be resolved, but instead figuring out is there a constitutional violation? What is the extent of the constitutional violation? And how do I think is the best way of adopting a proportional response that will prevent the, the violation, that will enforce the right to vote, that will avoid equal protection issues? And again, right, these are very rushed proceedings. These are hurried proceedings. In some cases, they at least initiate as ex parte proceedings. Your judges are obviously generalists. They, they, they don't have a, a, a deep background in the electoral process and the administrative considerations. And in many cases, many of the litigants have their own partisan motivations and, and have their own partisan advantage that different permutations of judicial relief could issue. And so that's far from an ideal situation. So my, my the, the overall recommendation of the piece 
is that rather than having this be handled on an ad hoc, subjective, case-by-case basis by courts as a matter of constitutional law under the, the least advantageous circumstances in which you want to be litigating a serious constitutional case, or rather than even just leaving it to governors to resolve as on a on a case by case basis under their general elect uh, under their general state of emergency statutes my recommendation has been that states need to be proactive in adopting election emergency laws that again you're not going to precisely identify every conceivable permutation of threat your electoral system can face but more broadly at a minimum identify who is responsible for making certain decisions, under what circumstances they are empowered to invoke these emergency laws, specify how broadly these emergency laws should extend. One of the most challenging questions in this field is, if you have a statewide election, for example, like a presidential election or or a US Senate race, a gubernatorial election, but a disaster, an emergency only strikes part of the state, Should relief be given on a statewide basis? Should relief be given only to the immediately affected areas? Should it be given to the affected areas and the immediately surrounding or or adjacent counties? Trying, no matter, there isn't necessarily one objectively correct answer to that, particularly once you, you take into account equal protection concerns, trying to limit the scope of relief both threatens to be under inclusive. It raises concerns about partisan manipulation, raises equal protection concerns. And so for to have election emergency laws adopted in advance under at least something of a veil of ignorance, specifying who gets to decide under what circumstances this emergency power gets to be invoked, specifying how broadly these changes will apply geographically throughout the state or to what voters they will apply throughout the state. And then finally, cabining of officials' discretion, saying, here are certain steps you are authorized to take, or at a minimum, here are certain steps you are not authorized to take. Here are certain things that no matter what the emergency, we don't want you doing. We think pose too great a threat to the integrity of the electoral process or the accuracy of the results. Having election emergency statutes adopted in advance that lay out those issues is far preferable in my view to the the other approaches. To the extent states have election emergency statutes and are thinking about revisiting them, or states don't have them and are thinking about adopting them, are there particular factors that you think are especially important for them to kind of substantially substantially consider like what those election emergency statutes should say and and why do you think those particular factors are so important in other words sort of where are the, the real decision points in sort of figuring out what a statute should say and why it should say it and are there particular issues that present or are most likely to present real problems in in application and in figuring out what to do after the fact Sure. So most basically, one, one, of my, one of my fundamental arguments, and this is something that, in fact, I'm, I'm focusing on in, in some current works in progress and that, that I want to discuss in, in greater depth in a, a follow-up piece on election emergencies that I'm writing, is that if you want your electoral system to be sufficiently robust to be able to withstand a wide range of emergencies, a wide range of potential threats, 
you need to have a diversity of mechanisms for voting, right? You can't put all of your eggs in one basket and say, let's just have vote by mail. Let's just have in-person voting. Let's especially, right? Let's just let's just do everything over the internet, right? Once you either as your in terms of your base election laws or as an election emergency measure, once you decide to move primarily or exclusively to one way of voting, you're exposing yourself to tremendous systemic risk, right? In the wake of something like the coronavirus, vote by mail is obviously going to be a crucial part of our response. One of right, a key provision of many state election emergency laws that, is, that will help those jurisdictions are uh, provisions that allow officials to provide absentee ballots on a more liberalized basis, that allow officials to suspend some of the hurdles or some, some of the requirements for being able to cast absentee votes. And I'm thinking primarily here of the states that have excuse-based voting for either as, a, as an election emergency matter to suspend that excuse requirement or for the chief uh, election officer of the state or the attorney general to simply declare as a matter of law the threat posed by the covid virus qualifies as a legally sufficient excuse for everyone within the state electorate those 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 types of measures will allow vote by mail to be used as a way of responding to the covid virus but the next threat the next disaster might be fundamentally different you might have anthrax attacks, right? You, you remember people were extremely terrified about the, the mail back when anthrax was being randomly sent to government officials and certain other high profile targets. You might have a national postal worker strike. You might have key postal sorting, mail sorting facilities be destroyed, right? There are other types of circumstances. There are other types of emergencies where vote by mail would wind up being the problematic link in the chain, would wind up be opposing the threat to the electoral process. People either wouldn't want to use that or would be unable to use that, in which case then you would have to fall back on your alternate routes of voting. So a robust election system is one that incorporates many different avenues for voting, many different opportunities for voting. And as states consider election emergency laws, the sorts of things they want to look for are laws that give election officials discretion to maximize the opportunity to use all of the different uh, avenues for voting they have at their disposal. Broadly speaking, you can think of you can think of, of ways of voting, mechanisms for voting in three categories. Right, there's in-person voting at polling places. There's absentee voting, which is called vote by mail in some jurisdictions. And then there's alternate mechanisms for voting, which which I define as including curbside voting, for example, which is available in, in some states for uh, voters who meet certain requirements, or many states provide special opportunities for voting for people who are medically confined, for people who are in, in hospitals, for example, or in nursing homes and assisted living facilities. These are people who might who, who can't easily get to polling places, might, might be physically confined, where they can't travel at all. They might even have physical difficulty in carrying in completing ballots. So uh, some state laws allow election officials to go to them to provide the ballots to them where they are. And if, to, if, if a need arises to even provide assistance to them in, in filling out the ballots. 
And so a robust election emergency statute will recognize that you know, particularly we in advance, right, we don't know which of these types of mechanisms will most effectively help us respond to a particular threat. So they will give officials discretion to maximize the use of vote by mail, perhaps compelling officials to automatically send out absentee ballot request forms or absentee ballot applications to every voter in the jurisdiction to proactively facilitate the use of, of absentee voting. I already mentioned deeming that uh, excuse restrictions be satisfied, extending deadlines for requesting absentee ballots, particularly for jurisdictions that require voters to, to request vote by mail ballots seven days ahead of time, 10 days ahead of time. Extending those deadlines could be an essential part of responding to election emergencies. For jurisdictions that require absentee ballots be received by election day, one other potential election emergency measure would be changing that, suspending that requirement so that they only have to be postmarked by election day, which would give voters much more flexibility to respond to late-breaking threats, late-breaking emergencies by requesting absentee ballots later in the process, by casting their absentee ballots later in the process. In terms, in, in terms of in-person voting, election officials need to have discretion to be able to relocate polling locations, to split polling locations, like in the context of the coronavirus, for example. The less voters you have at any particular polling location, the less opportunity you have for transmission, the easier it is to maintain social, social distancing. And so if this were an issue that arose later in the electoral process, election officials, if you have situations where multiple precincts have been consolidated together into a single polling location, if election officials have discretion later in the process to split apart those polling locations, to relocate them, to minimize the number of people who were casting their ballots in each one, that could be a way of, of helping to, to uh, protect public health. If election officials have discretion to expand the use of curbside voting, to expand what qualifies as Oh, the, the, the type of uh, medical facility or the type of, of, of facility where they can go themselves to facilitate voting rather than exposing potentially vulnerable populations to uh, risk risk of infection by by going to polling places. There are there are steps that can be taken for each type of for each type of voting that maximizes its availability, that helps to ensure that people have an adequate opportunity to vote while also safeguarding the, integ the integrity of the process. To the extent that legislators are thinking about what election emergency statutes should look like or uh, the kinds of discretion that you know, uh, executive officers or even judges might be exercising in the moment. Are there particular choices or kinds of choices that you think are especially troubling or potentially problematic or that you would be inclined to think are usually not the right way to go? Absolutely. I, I think that there are, there are a few, there are a few decisions that raise sufficiently serious concerns both in general and also specifically within the context of the coronavirus that I would strongly urge officials against 
adopting as a matter of discretion. And I would urge legislatures against authorizing within election emergency statutes, most basically, and, and perhaps one that there's the greatest degree of consensus on, is the use of the internet, internet-based voting. In both in New Jersey, following a super, Superstorm Sandy, as well as more recently in Florida, in Florida during the 2018 election cycle when we got hit by a, a hurricane, a few local election officials purported to allow voters to electronically transmit their ballots, either to mail the email their ballots to election officials' own personal email accounts. I think one was one was a Hotmail account, or authorizing them to to fax in their ballots, despite the fact that there there were no security measures in place. The election offices were not equipped to re- be receiving substantial numbers of of faxes. And in New Jersey, what 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 happened was the the fax machine ran out of paper. It ran out of toner. Numerous voters thought they were sending in their ballots. The ballots never got through. The ballots that were in a, an election official's just personal email account were were deemed, in, number one, contrary to state law, but also raised all of the pro- security problems associated with internet-based voting, right? Identifying the certainly identifying the source of the ballots, ensuring the ballots hadn't been tampered with in in in, in the course of transmission. Particularly as we stand here in 2020, right, where during the last presidential election, one of the major concerns is cyber intrusions. One of the major concerns is foreign intelligence agencies, right, hackers associated with foreign military entities trying to manipulate the electoral process or trying to use the internet to undermine the electoral process, moving actual transmission of ballots, whether Mail, emailing out blank absentee ballots to voters or allowing voters to return completed ballots over the internet seems to create tremendous security questions, seems to create tremendous holes that could undermine public confidence in the outcome of the election. So given the current state of our own electronic infrastructure, given the current lack of security measures in place, to facilitate internet voting, many experts have very strongly cautioned against allowing people to return completed ballots. And in light of in light of our experience with foreign foreign intrusion over the internet, I would even suggest going a step further and not allowing blank absentee ballots to be sent out over the internet, precisely because you don't you don't necessarily know who's getting them on on the other end. Another another measure that I would that I would advocate is sending out absentee ballot request forms or application forms to all registered voters rather than automatically mailing out actual absentee ballots themselves, because we know that election records are election voter registration databases. We know that they're often wrong. That there are there are studies suggesting that as many as one in eight voter registration records have some sort of a problem with it. Either they're duplicate records, it's an old address, so it's no longer an address where someone lives. The voter has died. The voter is no longer eligible to vote in that state because they've moved. They've moved out of the jurisdiction. Or in many cases, the record might not even refer to a real person, that there have been scandals from groups on both the left and the right 
particularly where people have been paid either directly or indirectly based on the number of voter registration forms that they've submitted to to fabricate uh, uh, to fabricate they fabricated uh, voter registration requests in order to make in order to get money and so to the extent that you have voter registration records that are outdated that are erroneous that are fraudulent that that are duplicative that refer to non-existent people if you automatic or that just have mistakes on them maybe they're typos maybe you know, somebody's handwriting was was hard to read maybe there, there's some sort of other mistake if you automatically send out absentee ballots to every single Re purportedly registered voter, if you accept the statistics that one in eight are erroneous, and another study, another study suggests that uh, approximately 8% of them are erroneous, in the context of an election where you have 214 million registered voters, you're, you're talking about a substantial millions, right? It, up to tens or 20 million, more than 20 million absentee ballots being sent to the wrong place, to outdated addresses, to non-existent people, that seems to pose a substantial risk to the system. Add on top of that the fact that particularly in the context of the coronavirus, people might not be hunkered down at home. They might not be at their, at their address of record. They might be staying with family. They might be staying with friends. Even under ordinary circumstances where, where you don't have the risk of corona, people might be away at school, they might be at work, so they might be traveling for work. So yet again, you have millions of ballots being sent to the wrong places where voters aren't. You will have millions of people requesting duplicate absentee ballots be sent out to where they are, to be sent out to the correct address, to where they are staying, or, the, or their current address. And so having millions of unaccounted for ballots simply floating around out there outside the, 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 the control of election officials seems to create serious vulnerabilities. One relatively easy solution is rather than sending out the ballot, send out the request form, send out the application to each registered voter in the, in the, in the system so that number one, you get confirmation that, okay, this is a real person. This is who they this is who they claim to be. And they can confirm, yes, I still live here. I still am eligible to vote here. And by the way, here's the address I'd like you to send my ballot to. So you can confirm for when you do send out the ballots, you're sending it out to real people based on current information and the ballots are going to the place where they actually are. That seems to be a fairly easy step that both Pro proactively promotes voting, proactively encourages people to cast absentee ballots to minimize their risk of exposure to the virus, while simultaneously acts as a check on the integrity of the system and avoids having millions of duplicative ballots, having millions of ballots going to wrong places, outdated places, or completely to, to, to fraudulent people. And it, that seems to be almost, in my view, almost the no-brainer solution that achieves multiple goals in, in order to in order to uh, protect the ele electoral process. Among other things, you've mentioned that you know voting by mail or kind of absentee balloting uh, during the coronavirus uh, pandemic is likely to be an effective approach. Um, to the extent you're you you've studied it. 
Um, do you have any sense of sort of what happened during the 1918 epidemic, um, a little more than 100 years ago? Uh, are there any lessons <laughs> we might learn from that? And do you have any other kind of thoughts specific to the current situation about, you know, what elected officials might keep in mind as they're administering elections in order to try to anticipate problems? I mean, obviously, in an emergency, you can't anticipate everything that might come up. But like, are there other things that you think they might be sort of watching for or thinking about in making decisions about how to proceed? Sure. So particularly inspired by the by the, the current situation, the 1918 election is one of the, the case studies that I'm focusing on, on my, in, my, in my forthcoming piece. Uh, one, one of the other ones I, I, that, that I'm looking at, uh, I had mentioned before, is the 2018 election cycle where uh, we, we, got, we got hit very hard by, here in Florida by, by a hurricane in the midst of, of, of the electoral process. One other comparable uh, situation in terms of just right, overall impact on American society, although not a not strictly a public health crisis, is the Civil War. And if, right, if you if you even go back before the before the the 1918 flu to to the Civil War, that that was actually the origin in many states for absentee voting laws. And as a matter of fact, this was one of the things we discussed during during uh, our my last my last visit to Ipsy Dixit here. Uh, one of the things I, I talked about in my previous article, where many states had allowed members of the um, military, members of the Union Army who were away from home, many state legislatures passed laws allowing them to vote absentee, even though in many cases their state constitutions required them to cast their their ballots in person at polling locations and that triggered a, a whole uh, a whole separate round of litigation over you know what what to do in that case where you had state statutes purporting to authorize these ballots to be cast you had state constitutional provisions purporting to disallow them the fact that that it was a federal election at at, at issue added an additional wrinkle an additional overlay because the, 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 the U.S. Constitution's elections clause kicked in. And so all of that is to say one of the most important things for election officials to keep in mind, and this is, this is especially salient, I would suggest, after uh, the way that Ohio, uh, after what happened in Ohio with regard to its primaries, where the Secretary of State there just unilaterally issued an order declaring that uh, absentee voting was extended for several additional weeks, unilaterally declaring that when that a new in-person election day would be held because the Secretary of Health had prohibited anyone from uh, going to polling places on the day the primary had originally been scheduled. There was absolutely not only did the secretary lack statutory authority to do that, but of course, all of those orders were directly contrary to the requirements and the deadlines all set forth in state law. And so one of my biggest cautions to election officials, and again, one of my biggest arguments in favor of election emergency statutes is that when officials act, they need to make sure they are doing so in conformance with the requirements of the federal constitution, right? In conformance with the requirements to the extent they apply of the of the state constitution, 
and that they're acting within the scope of their legitimate powers, right? One of the one of the worst case scenarios where you want to be in is you have election officials that purport to authorize voters to do something in defiance of state law. They don't have statutory authorization to, to unilaterally take those emergency measures, like telling people to vote over the internet, for example, as we talked about before in, New Jer- in uh, a county in New Jersey and Florida, and then those ballots being de- de- declared invalid. Or the the worse, having the outcome of the election hinge on whether these disputed ballots are counted or not when right, they're flatly in violation of the law, when election officials flatly lacked authority to authorize their voting, and yet right, the public acted in reliance on those on those directions to cast them. So to the again, to the extent that you have election emergency laws that confer both that not only confer adequate authority on election officials to respond to these crises, but also limit their discretion, right? Identify the red lines that they shouldn't cross. That helps to avoid having having the, these types of constitutional disputes. Well, so Michael, in in closing, I wonder if you could kind of just reflect on our current moment and the kind of range of different upcoming elections that we're going to be holding by hook or by crook across the country. And just, I can't help but wondering, I'm like, as a specialist in this area and someone who's thought about it more than I think at least a lot of other academics, um, are there things you're particularly concerned about or things you're particularly worried about? Like, you know, it's always impossible to anticipate the future but like like what are kind of the, the the nightmare scenarios that you might potentially envision and like what do you think the people kind of thinking about how to administer an election in a time of coronavirus pandemic ought to be especially on the watch for and especially concerned about well two election-specific nightmare scenarios I could think of. Number one, and I, and quite frankly, I, I, think they're, I think they're potentially very closely related to each other. Number one, you have a situation where as a result of the virus or as the result of or some other natural disaster, and again, right, we're thinking of, as we look forward to the November election, we're thinking of things in terms of the coronavirus as the crisis, the coronavirus as the emergency, but there's, there's neither a law nor right, a, a law of man or a law of nature that says you only get one emergency at a time, right? We can be faced with the coronavirus on top of a devastating hurricane, on top of, God forbid, right, a terrorist attack or something else. So right, even thinking of things in terms of just having one crisis is dangerously over-optimistic. And so... What, so one one potential nightmare scenario is whether as a result of the corona on its own or the corona plus additional crises, you have extraordinarily low, historically low voter turnout, where then you are faced with the you're faced with the question of if you have 20, 25 percent of the of, of the electorate voting, whether on a nationwide basis or whether within particular swing jurisdictions. Can that be treated as a valid election 
Will there be public outcry for having a redo? Will there be public outcry or political pressure to, to have an alternate opportunity for voting, an additional opportunity for voting? Those, those, are, those are questions that would be extremely difficult for you, particularly in the current hyper-partisan environment, for any branch of government to be able to address. One possible way of one possible way that that could happen would be due to insufficient planning or due to just again an unforeseen accident. Election officials have insufficient absentee ballots to send out. Right? Typically, with in most jurisdictions, right? There are there are a handful of jurisdictions that conduct their elections entirely by mail. But in most jurisdictions, you tend to see anywhere from between a quarter to a third of votes being cast on an absentee basis. One thing that I have consistently been emphasizing to election officials, to the press, to other academics, right, at, at every possible opportunity is election officials need to prepare now to be able to conduct the November election primarily and even with an eye toward exclusively on a vote by mail basis. They need to be prepared with far more absentee ballots on hand to be able to send out to voters than in the ordinary course of events. They should expect, not necessarily that every voter in the jurisdiction will vote absentee, but they should be in a position where they could fulfill 100% of absentee ballot requests. The nightmare scenario is an election official, a county, a state, doesn't order enough absentee ballots, doesn't adequately prepare or treats this like an ordinary election year, and a substantial fraction of the electorate winds up becoming disenfranchised because they simply do not have the ballots to send out. Or again, right? you, you can imagine right, crisis upon crisis, maybe they did order enough ballots, but there's a flood where there's a fire and the ballots get destroyed at the last minute. And now you have to hurriedly rush and try, try to get New, new ballots at, that, at, at the very last minute. That's exactly the, the type of situation where if you have a large fraction of the, of the electorate that is, that is reasonably, justifiably scared to, to vote in person, they will only vote by mail. You have to have the ballots there to be able to send them. And so even more so than anything else, even more so than the higher level statutory changes, right? the more, the more extensive and more detailed contingency plans, just the absolute basic, have the ballots to send out, have the infrastructure in place ready to send out the ballots, ready to receive back those ballots. And in all likelihood, many jurisdictions are going to require more machines to add more, depending on what type of absentee ballots they use, probably optical scan machines to be able to process those ballots, to count and tally those ballots, simply because, again, if you're getting two, three times as many absentee ballots as, as you typically expect, you're, you're going to have to, you're going to have to expand your entire uh, processing infrastructure, which includes not just the ballots themselves, but the, but the machines on the back end to, to process and tally them. Amazing. Well, let's hope we don't get too many uh, emergency crisis act of God events this year, because honestly, 2020 has just started and it already seems like a 
a pretty overwhelming series of events. It, all, it, it, it already seems like it's been several years and it's been just 2020. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Michael. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. I, I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me back. time is coming and I'm a real gone candidate. Go to the polls real early and don't forget the date. Just vote for Mr. Boogie. Vote for Mr. Boogie. Vote for Mr. Boogie. Vote for Mr. Boogie. I'll put rhythm in the White House and all the squares have got to go. I'm going to go to every city, make a speech in every town. Kiss everybody's baby when their daddy's not around. So vote for Mr. Boogie. Vote for Mr. Boogie. Vote for Mr. Boogie. Vote for Mr. Boogie. I've been rhythm in the White House and all the squares have got to go. I'm gonna print up lots of money. I'm gonna sell it for a dime. All you folks can quit your job and have a real good spending time. If you vote for Mr. Boogie, vote for Mr. Boogie, vote for Mr. Boogie, vote for Mr. Boogie. I'll put rhythm in the White House and all the squares have got to go. Squares have got to go. 